I'm about to say something to you that I've said before, but I've been your pastor for over 14 years, so most everything I have to say I've said to you before. You can convince yourself that anything is justified if you believe that God's primary concern for you is that you be safe. If you believe that God is very concerned about your personal safety, when you begin to feel the opposition and the resistance of a, a, a world that is fallen, and, and we are more and more, I'm not talking about um, the resistance we feel because of the actions of a fake brand of Christianity, which is more driven by socio-political or cultural concerns than the true authentic biblical faith. I'm just saying that when true authentic biblical faith begins to be seen for its otherness, and it is, then those who are not a part of that stream of life, that authentic biblical faith, are going to experience resistance. And if in that moment of resistance you think that that God wants you to be safe, then you feel justified in launching Christian jihad back at that opposition, of responding to them in anger and in rage because you need to defend yourself because God wants you to be safe. You'll justify any behavior, any outrage, any indignation if you believe God wants you to be safe. May I also add that you'll also justify that if you believe yourselves to be right. And here's the thing. All of us should believe ourselves to be exclusively right. We believe that Jesus Christ is the only way to God, that there is no other answer under heaven than the name of Jesus for the condition of mankind. And from that place of rightness, Believing God wants us to be safe when that rightness is challenged, again, Christian jihad, anger, outrage, indignation, will justify it. But here's what we need to understand. Every time we try to hit back harder, we shame the name of Jesus. Every time we attempt to defend ourselves vigorously and righteously and indignantly. We, we don't advance the kingdom of God. There is a defense for an exile. An exile, if you'll remember, is someone who has given their lives to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and as a result of that decision has become distinct from the world, an exile in the world. There is a defense when you feel that opposition, it's just so ridiculously countercultural that you all think, when I say these things to you, that the cheese has slid off the cracker up here. But I'm going to show you my work, okay, in God's Word. And I hope that we'll see that what feels countercultural in the 21st century is really just the way of Jesus. So I hope you found 1 Peter 3. Let's look at verse 13 to get started. It says, Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? So he's asking a rhetorical question. 
Essentially saying this, what is there to worry about? Now, what is the basis of that rhetorical question? What is there to worry about? Verse 12, we looked at that last week. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayers, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. He has just told us that when we're experiencing that opposition, God sees us, God hears us, and God has us. And so in light of that truth, what are we to fear? Who is there to harm you? What are you worried about? Why all the panicked outrage? Why all of the, the, the loathing of, of those who are coming against you? What is there to harm you if you are zealous for living out your distinction? Living out your exilic kind of life. He goes on to say, but even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, and that if is a rhetorical if, meaning he actually believes that suffering is coming. He has already started to feel it himself. He knows his people have started to feel that otherness of their exile. He knows it's coming. He's not saying it might not come. He's saying he, he knows it's coming. So he's, he's saying, if you, because you will, suffer for righteousness sake, he says the the reason you, you don't need to fear is because you'll be blessed. Why will we be blessed? Well, because God sees you, God hears you, God has you. At the end of all things, according to verse 12, vindication comes of you for the Lord's sake. So you'll be blessed. You will ultimately be sons and daughters of the king. You will be rulers of the universe. You'll be blessed. So, he says, have no fear of them. Do not be troubled. Don't run around in panicked outrage. There's no need for Christian jihad. God sees you. God hears you. God has you. It's all, it's all in his hands. There's no need to worry. So, he's spoken negatively at this point. He, I know opposition's coming. I know you're going to feel that that otherness began to kind of stand out and that the, 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 the hatred of the world for that is coming your way. So just stop worrying about it. That's negative instruction. Then the positive instruction. He says, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean to honor in our hearts Christ the Lord as holy? Well, this is an example where the English Standard Version, which is the translation from which I preach and do a bulk of my personal study, kind of obscures the meaning a little bit. Almost every other English translation will say something like, uh, sanctify Christ in your hearts, um, something along those words, rather than use the word holy. And the reason they make that choice is because the most common translation for the word in the ESV, which I preach from, that is translated as holy, is sanctify or set apart. And the heart is the seat not of our emotions in the first century. The heart was the seat of the mind. It was of making determination. So what he is saying here is this. Don't panic, but instead decide that Christ is Lord. I mean, really, Lord. Now, you're saying, well, they already have. They've given their lives to Jesus as Lord and Savior. Well, he's talking not in a, in, a, in a salvation sense. He's talking in a very practical sense. You need to decide as you go out into the world and that otherness begins to be seen what you're going to do in that moment. You're going to have to decide, is Christ going to be the Lord of your life, really? Or is it just going to be pretty words on Sunday? 
You need to not be fearful. You just need to start living like Jesus indeed really is Lord. And then he says, in that mindset, always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. What is the defense there? Well, it's not in a formal kind of legal sense that he's speaking of there. Uh, Government-wide opposition has not come at this period of time in Peter's life to the cause of Christ. He's basically just saying you need to be ready to be conversant, defend the choice that you have made to live as Jesus is Lord. And he, he, makes, he makes it clear. If you've decided to live with Jesus as Lord, you will be asked about it because it will stand out to the world. He anticipated that as the people lived out their commitment to Christ in real practical ways in their culture, that at some point someone was going to say, what? What is this all about? You will stand out. It's something like this. My daughter, Abby, lives uh, in the Twin Cities with her husband, Alex. She started uh, having a Minnesota state of mind when she went to college up there. And, and one of our final college visits, I was in the Disneyland of Commerce, the Mall of America. How many people have been to the Mall of America? All right, a few of you, right? It's mind-boggling. It truly is mind-boggling. I was in the Mall of America, and uh, I'm a T-shirt guy. I, I never have enough t-shirts. The number of t-shirts that is adequate as far as I'm concerned is one more. And so I was in the Mall of America and I saw a t-shirt that no one would pass up. It was a picture of a drawing of, of Goldie the, the Gopher, the mascot of the University of Minnesota playing hockey. I mean, who would not want that shirt? I still have the shirt. And I was purchasing it. And while I was checking out, the cashier said... It was a guy. He said, where are you from? And I said, Kansas. And he said, I kid you not, this, given the fact that I have lived in the deep south significant portions of my life, he said, I knew you were not from here. You're a southerner. I said, I, said I was from Kansas. That is nowhere. That is not being a southerner. Uh, he said, I, I, heard, I heard it in your voice. I, I heard your accent. And I said, not proud of it, I did say, I don't sound funny, you sound funny. That's what I said to him. <laughs> but just in the course of life, just in the course of interacting with someone, I stood out. Well, this is what Peter anticipates. Peter anticipates as, as his readers interact in the normal course of living with the world around them, that somebody's going to say, you have a Galilean accent. You're not from here, are you? And you'll say, no, I'm not. I'm from the kingdom of the one true king. It will stand out. And so he needs to, he tells us that we need to be prepared to make that defense, to talk about our faith when we are asked. And he says to give them a reason for the hope that is in you. Reason, it means there's an intellectual basis 
for the faith in which we placed our hope, our, our idea of, of what is ultimately going to happen to us. He says we need to be conversant about the basic facts of our faith and the overall trajectory of our faith because we will be asked about it. So, so far, so good. We, we have not said anything here to this point that that should come as a surprise to anybody in the 21st century. But this next stuff's weird for us. This does not land well in our ears. I promise you it doesn't. He said you need to be ready, you need to be prepared for all of this, yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience. No Christian jihad. No trying to win an argument. No trying to meet indignation with more righteous indignation. No meeting a hard hook to the left with a harder hook from the left. None of that stuff. He's saying, you need to be like Jesus when people asked him, what's up with you? Gentleness, respect, not outrage, not indignation. And we think, well, that's ridiculous. Won't we just get run over? Won't we just be taken advantage of? Go back. He said at the very beginning of this verse, you need to decide, is Jesus Lord or not? Does he see you, hear you, and have you, or not? Are those just pretty words on Sunday morning, or not? You need to decide. And from that place of absolute confidence in the Lord, we can, with gentleness and respect, say, here's what I believe. Here's why I believe it. Here's why you need to as well. All of this with a clear conscience. What does that mean? So that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. He anticipates not a lessening of vitriol directed towards someone who with gentleness and respect gives a reason for the hope that is within them. He anticipates actually that it may escalate. So he says, when you are slandered, when you are slandered, do so from a good conscience that Christ may not be put to shame. There's a guy, I actually know him a little bit, who has really in the past, I don't know, 18 months, two years, developed this kind of Christian celebrity. And, and it's all built on just throwing bombs just throwing bombs at the world, just, just saying us, them kinds of things over and over and over again on, online. And, and frankly, what he's doing is he's monetized outrage so he can sell books and gain a following and get asked to conferences. That's what he's done. So he's always throwing these bombs. There's a truth, world. Deal with it. But he also almost as often complains about how he's being persecuted. I'm standing for truth, and I'm being persecuted for it. 
And I don't know him quite well enough to say this, but what I need to say to him is, you're not being persecuted for the truth. You're being persecuted because you're a jerk. You're just being a jerk. And you think you're standing for Christ. What you're doing is running people away from Jesus because with no gentleness and with no respect and no seeming concern for those who need the truth that you claim to be standing so zealously for, you're justifying jihad. And church people just clap their hands off for it, but the world runs away from it. A clear conscience... I am being Jesus in this moment when I speak for Jesus. And then he says, for it is better to suffer for doing good. Again, anticipating that there will be pushback as you stand with gentleness and respect for the cause of Christ. It is better to suffer from that if it should be God's will. Then he says, than by doing evil, which in context, I believe. I didn't really... Think about it until this morning when I was reviewing my notes. In context, doing evil is is being prepared to give a reason for the hope that is in you without gentleness and respect. That's evil. Feels righteous. It's evil, I think, in context. And so what do we do with this? I mean, what, what can we provide in the way of hooks that will help us remember these very important truths as we as exiles are faced with, at times, needing to defend, offer a defense for the cause of Christ in the world? Let me give you three things real quick. First of all, exiles are confident. Exiles are confident as they engage the world, not panicked, not, not indignant, not combative, none of those things. Exiles are confident. What are they confident in? Confident in two things. First of all, confident in the gospel. Confident in the gospel. If I have the right answer, and all of us who claim the name of Jesus claim to have the right answer, If I have the right answer and I believe that at the core of my being, I'm never panicked. Truth always wins. So, confident in the gospel, confident in the Lord. I have decided as I engage this world that Jesus really is Lord. I'm going to live as such, and I know that he sees me, hears me, and has me. Exiles go into the face of opposition with that kind of quiet confidence in the gospel and in the Lord. Next, exiles are prepared. Exiles are prepared. Now, this doesn't mean that you need to be completely conversant at every crackpot religious theory that shows up on the Internet or on Biography Channel or A&E, which, by the way, A&E and Biography Channel, MTV for senior adults. That's what I, I call it. But um, anything that pops up on those things, it doesn't mean that you have to be able to run down every rabbit trail kicked your way. It does mean that you need to know the basics of the faith. 
it does mean that you need to be in tune with your story. In fact, there's incredible rhetorical power in your story in our world because everybody has a right to their truth and their story. So if you start the gospel presentation with saying, here's, here's my story of following Jesus, then you need to be able to move on to talk about the basics of the gospel. We'll talk about the basics of the gospel in just a moment. But the bottom line is there has to be a preparedness. It should not be something that catches us flat-footed or off guard. We should be able to wake up and do it. And then finally, exiles are blameless. In, in their confidence and in their preparation, they're not jerks. They speak to a lost world with gentleness and respect and a clear conscience. And so, with those things to help us remember what we've learned in this passage of Scripture, which, by the way, is my favorite section of 1 Peter. Next week's my least favorite section <laughs> because it's weird. But, uh, but this is my favorite one. So what, do, what can we do? All right? First, let's all make sure we know our story of following Jesus. All right? We need to be able to talk. This is the basic pattern. You've probably heard this before. What was my life like before Jesus? How did I come to Jesus? What has my life been like since meeting Jesus? So the thumbnail sketch for me, grew up in a Christian home. But at 12, I recognized that the faith needed to be my own. And I surrendered my life to follow Jesus as Savior. And since then, I've tried to live every single day in the knowledge and the power that Jesus is my true king. That's the story. Before, how I came to Christ, what life has been afterwards. As for the details of the gospel, I want to give you a simple way of being able to communicate that. Um, this is a pen and paper moment, so you may want to grab a pen and paper. This is forewarning. You may want to write some of this down, but you're going to be hearing about this over and over and over again starting this fall and going forward. But, but by way of just knowing the basic facts of the gospel and presenting those in a, in a way that is helpful, turn your attention to our screen. The Bible tells us that God has a design for our lives, that God cares about every aspect of our lives. That's our families, that's our personal lives, that's our choices, our money, our sex life, really everything about our life God has a design for it. If we live according to God's design, then we have the opportunity to live in the arena of God's blessing. The problem is that all of us have a tendency to depart from God's design. When we depart from God's design, the Bible has a word for that, and the word is sin. And inevitably, when we sin against God, when we leave His design, we end up in a place that we call brokenness. Now, all of us know what brokenness feels like. It feels like emptiness. It feels like guilt, it feels like rejection, it feels like shame, it feels like regret. But when we get in this place of brokenness, we always try to fix it. So we try to maybe dive into a different relationship or try to make more money or try to become more religious. But whatever we do, we try to mitigate the pain of our brokenness. We try to escape our brokenness in some way. Now brokenness really hurts and it feels like a terrible thing. But the truth is it's a good thing because brokenness draws our attention 
to the need for change in our lives. But the change that we need doesn't come from in here. The change we need comes from somewhere else. The good news is that the Bible tells us where that kind of change comes from. That kind of change comes from what's called the good news or the story of the gospel. Gospel is just the Bible word that means good news. The gospel is the story of Jesus. Jesus, who is the Son of God, who came to earth and he never departed from God's design in any way, not even one time. But Jesus was crucified on the cross for, the Bible says, the sins of the world. That's my sins and your sins. And when Jesus was hanging on the cross, God did a miracle. He took the sins of the world, our sins, and put them on Jesus. And Jesus received the punishment from God for our sins. When he'd done everything that he came to do, he said it is finished and he died. They took his body off the cross, they buried him, and three days later, Jesus was raised from the dead. The Bible says that God raised him from the dead to prove that Jesus was who he said he was, the Son of God, and that he could do what he came to do, forgive our sins and heal the broken places in our lives. The kind of change we need doesn't come from in here. The kind of change we need comes from the gospel itself. The Bible says that what we need to do when we find ourselves in brokenness is repent of our sins. In other words, change our heart, change our mind, change our direction, and believe the gospel story. That's the story of Jesus, how he was crucified for our sins and raised from the dead. The Bible says if we'll repent and believe, then Jesus will come into our lives. He'll forgive our sins and begin to heal the broken places in our lives. And then the Bible says that God will give us the opportunity to recover and pursue God's design for our lives. The cool thing about this is that we get to recover and pursue God's design from wherever we are. We don't have to turn back the past. We get to go and believe God and walk with God from right here. So that's a simple way of being conversant in the basic facts of the gospel. You'll be hearing more and more about it. So just by way of review, know your story. Know the facts. Don't be a jerk. That's, that's what we do today. And all with the understanding, God is not interested in your safety. He, in fact, expects you to follow Jesus into trouble and live as Christ is Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer.